And just before we get into our passage, uh, we had a blue slip question, oh, it would be three weeks ago now, I think, uh, last time we were in Genesis, uh, asking a question about the passage that we looked at before uh, in Genesis 12. So I'm just going to spend a moment uh, looking at that before we uh, start. The question was to do with the fact that in 1 Peter, uh, Sarah is uh, held up as an example of obedience. Uh, so Sarah, in our last passage, did obey her husband, but she obeyed him uh, in something that wasn't right, uh, in uh, entering into uh, Pharaoh's uh, court and seemingly becoming his wife. Um, so the question was, should we take that as an example? If, if we're told to obey like Sarah did, should we be doing the same thing? The easy answer to that question is no. <laughs> um, there you go. Um, but uh, the slightly longer answer would be that uh, Sarah is held up as an example of obedience. She even obeys uh, when she doesn't have to there and shouldn't have done. Uh, the bigger problems really is that when Sarah doesn't obey uh, in Genesis, when she's going to sort of manipulate her husband. Um, but even in the passage where Sarah is held up as an example, we get two things that help us understand. And if you want to know more, speak to Steve afterwards because he's been taking us through uh, 1 Peter for a while. Uh, but in 1 Peter 3, this is the verse. That's <laughs> um so it says uh, in 1 Peter 3 verse 5, But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything frightening. So two things there. One is it's looking at a specific instance in her life. And often in the New Testament, when Old Testament characters are picked up, we're not supposed to take the whole of their life. Because actually they're a real mixed bag, like Abraham. Uh, when, I, when she calls Abraham Lord, it's actually when she's talking to herself. Uh, when the promise has been made that she will have a child, she said, will my Lord have this pleasure? So her default thing in her brain, if you like, is that her husband is her Lord. Uh, that sort of idea of obedience. So it's particularly clear, because she's not just she's giving him, uh, you know, trying to butter up her husband by calling him Lord. It's actually just what she has in her mind. The second thing that we see there, though, is that we are uh, women are her children if they do good. And Sarah was not doing good in what she did. So we can't take that as an example uh, of, uh, of being good and obeying your husband. So if your husband asks you to do, or your wife the other way around, asks you to do something sinful, you're not uh, obliged to obey them in that. You're obliged to obey the Lord. But make sure that that's, that's the reason why uh, you're doing those things. Any more questions on that, do come back to me, chat to me afterwards, or, or write another blue slip and put it in the wooden box at the back. I'm going to move on now, though, to Genesis uh, 13. Faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from the animals. It's our need to believe and surrender our scepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all trust or faith in something or someone else. That is a sinister thing. Out of all the virtues, all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. That's not me saying that. Uh, that's uh, Christopher Hitchens who wrote the book, uh, God is Not Good. And I want to ask the question this morning, is Christopher Hitchens right? Is faith the surrender uh, of reason? Uh, is it a sinister trick that's sort of overrated? Is it just leaving your brain at home? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham. And we're going to see that actually this is the man that is given the title in Scripture, the man of faith. Uh, He's the one who exemplifies what faith means. Not in everything he does in his life, as we've 
I've just been hearing about Sarah. Uh, but in the big things in his life, Abraham exemplifies uh, faith, a man who believes God. But if you think about what we've seen so far, it hasn't really looked like it much, has it? Uh, actually, Abraham's been doing things that are not great. Uh, he's been uh, moving off into Egypt. He's been putting his wife in very compromising uh, situations. But last time we saw, he came out with great blessing. Not to reward his behaviour, because God has always worked by grace. That's what we saw uh, last time as we looked at Abraham's story. Well, given that he doesn't deserve it, we're going to see actually Abraham does do some good things in his life. Uh, We're going to see that actually Abraham does act in faith. And we're going to see it uh, this time in our passage. Uh, But first of all, see, there's a bit of a problem arising in our passage. Uh, The problem is, in verses 1 to 7, abundant blessing. The problem that he has at this point is abundant blessing. I'll read to you again uh, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to pronounce it AI, but I, think about it. I don't know why you do that. You normally, when you put two letters next to each other, uh, you don't normally pronounce them separately, do you? Um, but so Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ahai, uh, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. But their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. What we see here is that Abraham begins to retrace his steps. Um, So the places that he's been to before, going down and going south, he now revisits the same places going north. I think it's really significant that he does this because it's sort of rewinding history, isn't it? He's made a big mistake in Egypt and he's been called out for it. It's like he's sort of undoing history, going back. And our passage itself notes that it was a place where he was at the beginning where he stops. He comes back to the place where it all started before it uh, started to go wrong. He stops at the last place where he had any sort of interaction between him and God. He goes to the place where he called upon the name of the Lord. And he stops here at the place somewhere in the middle between Bethel and Ai. In the middle of nowhere, if you like. But there's a big difference this time between uh, what happened last time when he was there, what happens this time. The difference is that now he's stinking rich. That's the problem. He's got so much stuff. Remember, he prospered in Egypt despite his sin. He'd been blessed despite his moral failures. But it's not just Abraham. Look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. Actually, Lot had become rich too. Both of them had come out of Egypt with great riches and cattle. So much so that the land can't even support them. There's only so much land to go around in the place where they've set up their tents. There's only so much grass for their cattle to eat. Uh, Not that they're lacking in grass in their area, but it's just their herds are so huge. That's the problem. And where there are limited resources, well, arguments begin, don't they? We know that from the small things in life. uh, When you have two children in a room and only a certain number of toys, suddenly limited resources lead to fights and arguments. When you go onto a huge scale with nations when there's shortages of water 
or of oil. That causes fights as well. The principle is the same, really, between those two uh, kids fighting over toys and nations fighting over oil. But that's what starts to happen here with Abraham and Lot's field workers. They start to fight with one another. You can imagine the conversation, can't you? You know, we were here first. Hey, wait, no, no, those sheep are ours. Disputes breaking out all over the place. And these folks were actually part of the same clan. They were part of the same family. And to hammer home the stupidness of this situation of them fighting, Moses mentions there in the end of verse 7, well, who else is there? At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Well, that's information that we already know. But he's pointing it out because he wants us to see that actually it's not that they're fighting the Canaanites. It's not that they're causing them problems. Actually, it's each other. It's actually within their own family, within their own clan. We do well to remember how crazy that is when we think of churches, uh, within fights within churches and between churches sometimes. You know, you sort of expect attacks from the outside, but not from each other. It's stupid, but it's remarkably common, isn't it? And this is a serious problem for them. Because think about it, God is bringing, planning to bring blessing to the whole earth through Abraham. That's his plan. Yet, if Abraham is not even a blessing to his own family, if actually the problems that he has is, is causing strife within his own clan, and if Abraham's blessing doesn't bring blessing, instead it brings strife with all the abundance that he's got, well, what are they going to do? Well, Abraham has a, a wonderful solution. The solution is Lot gets the east. Have a look at verses 8 to 13. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourselves from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and journeyed east. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. Uh, well, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the, Sodom, uh, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now bearing in mind Abraham's previous problem-solving efforts uh, with pretending that his uh, uh, wife is not his wife, this one seems incredibly sensible, doesn't it? Abraham doesn't want strife between Lot's people and his people. Why? Because they're kinsmen. Uh, to quote Sister Sledge, we are family. That's what he's saying. We're, we're, we're with one another. He doesn't want to fight with Lot. So Abraham proposes a solution. Pick a direction, and you go that way, and I'll go the opposite way. And if you think about it, this is an incredible solution. Okay, so it might be sensible for them to separate. You might think, yeah, that, that makes sense. But Abraham gives Lot the first pick. Do you notice that? Actually, Lot gets the chance to pick the best bit. It's like when you split up a piece of cake. You know, you, you, put, you ever done that? You know, you split it and you give them the chance to pick which half or no, well, half a cake, <laughs> uh, which piece of cake uh, they get to, to have. He gives him the first choice. Well, this seems a million miles from the Abraham that we saw last time, doesn't it? 
We see a generous, ungrasping man here, willing to give away uh, part of the land. Well, why? Well, we'll see later on. But Lot here has the chance to get the best of the land, which is what Lot tries to do, doesn't he? Lot chooses his place. And you might think, well, this is great. It's, it's seeming really good what he chooses. He chooses the Jordan Valley. Uh, you see there in verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. You think, Jordan Valley, that sounds good. Looks like the garden of Eden, the garden of the Lord. That seems even better, doesn't it? Is this a, a chance to return to the garden? Remember in Genesis where we're being kicked out of the garden? Is it a chance to get back in? Sounding positive, isn't it? It looks like Egypt. Well, hang on, that's not sounding so good, is it? I mean, Egypt might be a fertile land, but they've just got in all that trouble in Egypt. It's in the direction of Zohar. Where is Zohar? Well, Zohar is where Lot will flee to when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh yeah, Moses mentions that too, doesn't he? That's what's also in this direction. Moses gives us a sneak preview of a few chapters on what's going to happen. This is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it tells you, doesn't it, that Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities. We're told so there in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. And we're also told that Lot moved his tent there as he goes into this valley. So the fact that this is not a great move is backed up by the fact that we're told Lot chooses east. Now again, if you've been with us through the series in Genesis, we've seen that east in general is not good. Adam and Eve seem to be thrown out of the garden to the east. Cain is sent to the east for his punishments. The inhabitants of the earth go east to build Bethel. Oh, sorry, you've got Bethel, Babel. Yeah, get that one right. Um, now, Lot goes east to claim uh, his set of the land, doesn't he? He goes east. It's not a huge thing, but it does fit in with this idea of this is not a good choice. So is it trying to tell us, well, Abraham's the good guy and Lot's the bad guy? You know, Abraham's the believer and Lot's the unbeliever. Well, no. We've got to be quite careful with Lot. We can be quite tempted to make Lot out to be something that he wasn't. If you look on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there's a quote from 2 Peter chapter 2. Just while people are looking that up, I'm a bit chilly. Can someone check the, the heating is on? Oh, okay. Great. Um, okay, 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. So this, this is speaking of God. God rescued Lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So as we read about Lot going in that direction towards Sodom, we need to bear that in mind. Lot here isn't going to be a pig in muck in Sodom. He's going to be a pig in agony. He's going to hate it. He makes a bad decision. But what is so wrong with Lot's decision? Well, many have commented there in verse 10, the idea of him lifting up his eyes. They say Lot didn't look with eyes of faith. He based his decision entirely on what he could see. God doesn't seem to come into his thinking at all. He sees a land that he likes with his eyes of flesh and ends up with a land of flesh. Well, that's possible. But the fact is, we just don't know. Abraham, in verse 14, will lift up his eyes as well, albeit at God's command. But it might be Lot's subsequent choices that are the real problem 
the fact that he goes and pitches his tent in Sodom, and then next time you meet him, he's living in Sodom. We must remember again and again that Genesis isn't here to teach us moral lessons. You know, do what Lot did, don't do what Lot did. That's not the point of our passage. In 2 Peter, if you think about it, Lot ends up in Sodom to teach us that God knows how to rescue. That's the point. It certainly fits with what will follow. But it's not there to give us a guidance lesson on which direction we should go. It's there to teach us about God. So, it's not a moral lesson. We have to be careful in trying to sort of find one and read one into it. So Lot goes east. Now we might be expecting the next bit to tell you Abraham goes west. But that's not exactly what happens, is it? There's a surprise. The surprise is Lot gets the east and Abraham gets the lot. Have a look at verses 14 uh, to 18. Put intended, by the way. Uh, 14 to 18. The Lord said to Abraham, lift up uh, sorry, he also said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Here God steps in and speaks to Abraham, and tells him to lift up his eyes, to look northward, to look westward, to look eastward, to look southward. In other words, to look everywhere. That's all the point of the compass, isn't it? God promises this land to Abraham and his offspring forever. But the bigger surprise here is, is really that Abraham gets the lot. He gets uh, the east as well. Even though Lot seems to have, have got the east, he isn't really going to possess it. We know that from what follows. Lot will have to rescue, sorry, Abraham will have to rescue Lot in the next chapter as he's kidnapped a spoil from a battle. God will have to rescue Lot uh, and bring him out of Sodom as well. Lot's time in the east is really not going to be a very successful one. We'll have to see that as we come back to this series a bit later on. But God gives Abraham all of it, the whole land. But it doesn't stop there. The promises are are ramped up again. Have a look at verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can, can be counted. The focus in Genesis really is the people. We begin to see the people develop and grow. Well, here are the people that God will give Abraham. Before Abraham's just been told that he'll have a great nation. That's the extent of the the promises at this point. But now he's told that this great nation, this people, will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, I went to the repository of all knowledge, uh, Google, uh, to try and find out how much dust is there in the world. And you know what? There is an answer. Nobody's been able to calculate. They can't even tell you how much dust is, is formed every day, or there's cosmic dust, there's dust from the Sahara Desert, there's all sorts of, of things, uh, sort of dust from everywhere. Every day we create more dust as our skin falls off and mixes with other things. But it's actually, not even now, not even with our, all our science and everything, is anybody able to tell you, even roughly, how much dust there is in the earth? I mean, think about when you, 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 know, you see a clean carpet, you get your vacuum out, 
vacuum it. Somehow there's just that you can't even see, isn't there? It's a figure too big to count. That's the whole point. And it's still too big to count now. The other images that God uses with Abraham are similar, aren't they? The sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. I mean, scientists can estimate them, but they can't actually count them. It would take more than their lifetime to to work out uh, how many there were. So all of these are uncountable, innumerable. And that's the point, isn't it, here? If you can count the dust of the earth. Well, we can't. We still can't. We could estimate, but never count. It's too bigger number. Now imagine this promise to Abraham. This is the first time he hears it like this. This is an old man with no children. And he's being told, actually, your offspring, they're going to be more numerous than the dust of the earth and the the stars in the sky. Yet he believes it. We know that because he does what God says as he follows. And you know what? It happens. Solomon will pray a thousand years later, if you look on the back of your notice sheets, at 2 Chronicles 1 verse 9. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled. For you have made me a king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. That's what he says. Numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, that means it, it comes true, it happens. That doesn't exhaust it. You've got to remember in scripture we get this sort of idea. I don't know if you've come across this idea before, but the idea of mountain peaks of scripture. You know, you get to uh, the top, if you ever go to the Lake District, something like that, you get to the top of a mountain, and you think you've got to the top. But actually when you get to that, you realise that there's, there's one a bit further on, but you can't see it until you get to the top. Well, it's a bit like that with scripture. You get three big ones, there are two big ones in the Old Testament. Uh, where you seem that like everything is fulfilled. Joshua, when they come into the land and the people are there, God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. You get it with Solomon here as he prays. But then when we get to Solomon, we realise, no, that's not quite it yet. Actually, there's Christ still to come, much higher peak. And then when Christ comes, we realise, well, actually, the fulfilment will only be complete in the new creation, off in the distance. And it's the same here. So the dust of the earth, well, it sort of happens with Solomon. But there's actually a greater fulfilment yet to come. And we are actually part of that fulfilment. Did you know that this morning? We're actually part of the answer to this promise to Abraham. So Galatians 3.29. On the back of your sheets again. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Or Romans 4.16. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now in Romans, that's the idea of all is Jew and Gentile. So actually this morning, if we're Christians here this morning, we are part of this promise. We are part of this innumerable dust of the earth. We're part of the stars in the sky, the sand on the beach. We are part of what God uh, was doing by making this promise. We're part of the fulfilment of this promise to Abraham. Did you know that? And the fulfilment will only be complete on that last peak, won't it, on the last day. Uh, but uh, Revelation 7, if you could turn that up. Revelation 7, the page numbers are on the screen. If you've got a Bible. If you haven't got a Bible, it's the last book in the Bible. Oh, sorry, I meant if you haven't got a church Bible. <laughs> if you haven't got a Bible, then that's useless information. Here we see the final fulfilment of this. 
promise to Abraham. <coughs> Revelation 7. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth, or sea, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with a seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What we see here is this final fulfilment of the promises to Abraham of this children that were as numerous as the dust of the earth. We get two ways of looking at the same thing. The first way of looking at it is this idea of the offspring of Abraham in numerical perfection. So 12 is a number throughout scripture for God's people. We get 12,000 of each of these different tribes. A thousand being a lot uh, in the, the book of Revelation. So we get this sort of idea of the idealised children of Abraham. But there's only 144,000 of them. That's, that's countable, because we count it. And then the camera changes focus, if you like. Sort of looks at the same thing from a different angle. And we see a group from every tribe, tongue and nation that no one can number. And it's the same thing. It's the offspring of Abraham, but from a different camera angle, if you like, from a different focus. Praising God, clothed in white. So on that last day, there really will be an innumerable people of all believers. From history, black, white, men, women, all will join together. The offspring of Abraham, the bride of the Lamb. And do you know what? We'll be part of that too. So we're part of it now, here on earth. But on that last day, we will be in that crowd. We'll be one of those people that they can't quite number. That's what we've got to look forward to. And we know Abraham believes this because God tells Abraham what to do. And Abraham goes and does it. God tells Abraham to go and walk about. See the land uh, that he is giving to him and his descendants. Abraham surveyed it before, but now he does it as a second round, a second chance. Abraham believes God and obeys him. Faith and obedience mark Abraham's life. And they mark the lives of all his children. So Abraham finishes our our passage settling at the Oak of Mamre. I say settles. He's still in the tent, isn't he? Doesn't build a house, even though he's going to be living there for a while. But this is a good place to end our series, really. Because he's still a pilgrim, but he's here, he's settled. And this place where we end, the Oaks of Mamre. Well, they're actually going to be, that's going to be the the base for the rest of Genesis. In fact, this is going to be at the centre of uh, our attention for the next thousand years in Scripture. It's right in the centre of the land, but it's also in the centre of what goes on. The place where Abraham finishes off in our passage, 
will be the first place that Abraham actually buys any land in the promised land, a tomb for his wife. This is where he himself will be buried. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried. Jacob and Leah will be buried. This is the place where the spies go in Numbers 13. This is the place that's filled with giants that they're so scared of. It's the land that Caleb inherits in Joshua. It becomes the place that's the city of refuge in the law. It's the place where David reigns as king for the first seven years before moving to Jerusalem. But as we see it now, we don't see that innumerable people, do we? We just see a man in a tent building an altar. An old man with no children, believing he will have innumerable children like the dust of the earth. But his faith here is not surrendered of his reason, is it? He's not leaving his brain at home. It's very reasonable in the light of God's promise. It's not belief in the total lack, uh, face of total lack of evidence. It's which evidence you believe. (laughs) Abraham believed his ears, didn't he? The promise that God had given him. Without the promise, yeah, it would just be pipe dreams. It would just be positive thinking. But he was given a promise. And that's what Christopher Hitchens didn't understand. Abraham's faith, our faith, is not based on pie in the sky. It's based on a promise. A promise that we know will happen. A promise that's more certain than what our eyes can see. So to our eyes, Abraham seems like a crazy man who's just given the best of the land to his nephew. Yet, with eyes of faith, we can see that he knows this land is his. He can be totally secure in his life because he knows the outcome is secure. With eyes of faith, we too can begin to see beyond these things, far beyond even ourselves, to that last day, where millions and millions, perhaps billions, can't count them, can we, will gather around the throne. How do we get there? Well, we have faith like Abraham, who took God at his word, even when his eyes told him another story. We put our trust in the true offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we lift our eyes to him. So if you're here this morning and you've not done that before, that's how you become a child of Abraham, an heir to the promise. You have faith like Abraham, turning from looking at yourself to looking to him, the Lord Jesus who died on the cross, so that we might be adopted into that family. To the world, he looks like a dead creature on a plank of wood. Yet in the light of God's promises, he is our only hope of salvation. wonder what you see. And if you have done that, if you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus, then keep going. Even when it looks bleak, lift your eyes to him and press on in faith as Abraham did, despite all the circumstances. And look with eyes of faith forward to what we will inherit. Eternity with God in the new creation, gathered around the throne, with innumerable people, innumerable as the dust of the earth. Well, let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for these promises that you make to us. Father, thank you for the promises that you made to Abraham. And Father, thank you that we are part of that fulfilment, that we are part of that people, the children of Abraham. And Father, pray that we too would have faith like him to believe your promises, even in the the face of, of difficult circumstances. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.